the Magic Book Club podcast. Hello, you're listening to the Magic Book Club podcast. Welcome along. Thanks for downloading us on the show. This time we've got the fabulous debut author, Luanne Goldie. Her brand new book, Nightingale Point, is out now. She's in the studio with me as we speak. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming down. What a pleasure to meet you. Yes. Brilliant. How does that feel to be holding this your debut book in I your hands? I know, it's weird. And I've just seen it in bookshops, which is very strange. And a few people have said to me, oh, we've bought it, which is even <sighs> weirder. But yeah, I'm still in that stage as a debut that it's still strange to me that people are buying and reading they will. the book. That That's what's going to happen, man. Yeah. Have you had the thing yet where you're sitting on the tube and you see someone reading your book? No. Okay, so what are you going to do when that happens? Because there's two schools of thought here. I'm going to try not to be weird about it. Yeah, impossible. So, I think I would move seats. Really? Yeah. In case they're looking bored? Yeah, or (laughs) if they make like a certain face or something. I don't know, that's just strange to think of. My friend was sitting on a, a train to Paris... And uh, he was reading a David Nichols book. Right. And David Nichols, who was on a previous episode of this podcast, right. uh, David Nichols walked up to him and went, hello, because David Nichols is real posh. Hello, I'm terribly sorry to bother you. I just wondered, wondered if you enjoy yeah. your book. And my friend Kevin was like, yes, it's amazing, you're David Nichols. So I think so what I'm saying okay. to you, Luanne, is that, first of all, the book is fantastic. So that gives you every right to go up to people. And, and talk to them. Oh, but I'm not David Nichols. That's just... But you're, this book is very, very good. I think it's fine. Um, so tell us a bit about um, how we ended up with Nightingale Point and give us a sort of overview. Without spoilers, because this podcast, mm-hmm. people will come to this and listen to it and then go and listen and go, then go and read the book. So right. let's do a kind of spoiler-free podcast. For okay. Them. So the book is set in the mid-90s in East London. And the way I've been describing it to people is... When I was growing up, I watched a lot of these 90s American disaster movies and they all start with this large cast of characters in the morning. You see them going about their day, um, going shopping, arguing with their siblings, things like that. And then a disaster happens to them and it's about how they get over it. So that's kind of what I had in my head when I started writing the book. But, you know, it's set in East London. It doesn't have that sort of American cordiness, save the world. This is about real people. If something, a real tragedy happened to them, how they would get through it, how mm. they would get over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So and, and so a real tragedy does happen to them. Yes. Um, and it's, I mean, it's it's weird because what happens is really awful, but it does that doesn't make it a difficult read in a way, which is, right, it's, okay. I think, because you've made these, these, these great characters who we love. Um, tell us a bit about who the cast that we're going to be going on this journey with. So there's quite a large cast of characters and I just looked at the sort of council estates I grew up on and you did have those, I guess, odd mixes of people and people that become friends. So you've got the teenage boy who hangs out in the stairwells. You know, he wants to be a rapper. He, mm. He's not the best at school. But he's this really lovable character and he's really good friends with um, an older Filipino lady who lives on the same floor as him. So the characters are quite random, but that's what it's like when you grow up in those sort of settings. People make strange friendships with people they wouldn't usually. Yeah. Um, so is this is this book is this set? So you grew up in East London. Yes. Where, in, whereabouts in East London? Um, in Hackney. Right. And so did you grow up? Is this estate in your head the same place as where you grew up? No, it's kind of a mix of lots of different estates. So I grew up on quite big estates. I grew up on Pembury and Kingshold, but they weren't, you know, they were sort of 1930s estates, lots of low-rise blocks. Right, But okay. Nightingale Point is a tower block. Yeah. But, and this might sound strange, but as a kid, we used to play in the tower blocks because <laughs> you could go to the top and you could see everything. And when it's really windy, they sway. So, you know, as a kid, do that's they kind Do they actually cool. move? Yeah, that's kind of cool. I don't think kids do this now, but... <laughs> Back then it was fine and it was like 
an okay thing to do. Yeah. So I did used to spend a lot of time on an estate called Nightingale Estate. But the fact that this is called Nightingale Point is just a coincidence. Mm-hmm. It's just the nurse name. And there's there's one of the characters, I think it's Tristan, who uh, a bit of the stairwell is like his safe place, like his comforting place. Yes. That's really interesting that his comfort comes in a communal space because that's a big part of the book, I guess, isn't it? Community. Yeah, community is such a big theme of the book. And... You know, in the stairwells, if you don't want to be in your flat all the time and Tristan lives with his older brother, his older brother's quite strict with him, he has lots of rules around the house, so Tristan does like the stairwells, it's his space and if the lifts are working, people aren't really in the stairwells, so Mm, he can just hang out there and do what he wants and meet up with his friends there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also we've got Elvis as well. Um, so he's a guy who's uh, he's caring the community, isn't he? Yes. Um, did, you, did you research any of this stuff? Did you just sit and Google things? How did you go about building this world for this guy well, in particular? Well, I teach as well. I'm a primary school teacher. And Elvis, the character was so clear to me because he just reminds me of so many of these children that I've taught over the years. Mm-hmm. Um those children that sort of come into schools and everyone's really worried about them and the first thing they point out is, oh, they have learning difficulties, but, you know, that's not what they're about. And the same with Elvis, he's this really brave character and you see him go through so much and he always comes The moment with him and Tristan, top. man, yeah. it's so moving. Like that friendship as yeah. well. So I just really wanted to have this character who was really brave and who did what maybe you you'd think he wouldn't do. He yeah. was really capable, yeah. despite, you know, him having learning difficulties. And now obviously these are, these events are based on real events that have happened and similar disasters yes. that have happened. I mean, yeah. it's, it's impossible to avoid the, the shadow of Grenfell in this in this book. Yes. Had that happened when you started writing this book? Or? No. So I wrote this book quite a few years ago. It was actually finished before Grenfell. Mm. Now, when the book was um, sort of with a publisher and it was being edited, when I did have to go back and look at the book, Grenfell had already happened. So that was really difficult because it was not so much the event that it's in a tower block that's similar. It's more the aftermath I found was quite similar about um, the authorities not really knowing how to deal with those kinds of communities and, you know, everyone sort of rallying around trying to help, but you're not really sure what to do. Mm. And it's very similar what happened with the Belmar disaster, which is what this book's based on. So tell us about that. This is in Amsterdam, is that right? Yeah, it happened just outside Amsterdam, a really large um, council estate called the Belmar. And it was just a really horrible accident that a cargo plane, it just lost control and it crashed into these these buildings. Mm. And it happened early 90s in Holland. And I'd never heard of that event before. My husband is Dutch and we spend time in Holland. So that's how I heard about it, driving around different areas. And someone said, that's the Belmar. That's where that plane crashed. And right. you just think, that didn't happen. That's yeah. such a just crazy event. Yeah. And then when I started looking into it, I was really interested in how the community rebuilt itself after going through something like that. Because mm-hmm. who else can relate to such a thing? Yeah. It's it's unimaginable, yeah. And it's um, the way that you bring it to life is is fantastic. Um, and it's I don't know. It, it just feels like the 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 the, uh, the immediacy of the aftermath. Like what happens ten minutes after it's happened? What happens a day after it's happened? What mm. actually happens? What do you do? You just sit there, or do you? Or you need to be with people, or all these things that these people go through. Yeah. And um, and this book, Nightingale Point. It's fascinating to see how, how, how all that happens. Have you spoken to survivors of any of these things? or have you? No, I haven't. I haven't. I did lots of research about um, the authorities, how they dealt with it, because I thought yeah. that was really interesting. And there's lots of really good documentaries about the Belmar um, made by the community there, because lots of them sort of thought... Well, it was difficult to first find out how many people were affected by it, because in a state like that... They had lots of illegal immigrants there. They had lots of um, really large extended families. 
So there were people saying, well, my cousin lived in that block, but mm. they didn't really because they're not official, they're not on paper anywhere saying that they lived in that so block. So nothing could happen, surely? No, and there were lots of people who lost their homes, but they didn't contact the authorities because they weren't really meant to be there in the first place. They weren't right. even meant to be in the country. So yeah. all that stuff, I found it really interesting. And there's lots of good um, research that I found on that. Yeah, it, it must have really made you. It made me angry reading about it, and especially, especially as we've said, with the fact that it does have so many parallels now with Grenfell tragically. The idea that this disaster happens to a community who don't have necessarily the investment or don't draw the attention that they deserve to to, to get solutions to find problems. It's, there's so much underinvestment. Yes, definitely. And it does leave you feeling like these people are being shortchanged. Yes, and I think it would be you know it was different now, especially with Grenfell. Lots of people used. Online, I know there's lots of online ca- campaigning even now around Grenfell and um, people want to get answers. But, you know, when the Belmar happened in the early 90s, they didn't have that. Lots of people didn't even have the language mm. um, to communicate with the authorities and ask for help. So it is quite different now. But, yeah, they're still... Mm. under investment and there's still those issues yeah but this this chaos happens out of chaos uh, comes love and that's what happens in nightingale point and it is it's it's a warming story um talking of chaos and love primary school teacher <laughs> so you still are a primary school teacher yes i teach three days a week okay. at a school in barking right um so yes and how does that influence? How, how do you do? You ever draw on stuff for your books, or no, do you just no. keep the streams very separate? No, I've never written anything set in a primary school. None of my short stories, or no, I don't think I have. Mm. It's very separate. I don't know. When I go to school, I'm I'm a teacher. Yeah, I'm not at school thinking about stories and dreaming about other things. You don't have the headspace for anything else when you're at school, and it's you in a room with thirty. Yeah. And I teach year one, so they're five and six years old. That's full on. Yeah, there's a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> 30 feels like 300 yeah. in that instance. But it's, it's easy in a way. Then I have a four-year-old girl at home. Right. And sometimes being with my class, you know, I just ring a little bell when they all stop. They put everything down. They're silent. I can't do that at home with my four-year-old. <laughs> I know. Welcome to our world. This is what happens. I've got two kids and all the teachers at the school and nursery are like, oh, they're so well-behaved. Yeah, like, they're so different at school. Yeah, yeah, They yeah. really are. Yeah. But I love teaching. It is a hard job. It's a really, really hard job. You're not going to give it up if the, because this book thing is going to, this is going to happen for you. You know, you're, you're going to have success. This book is going to be successful. Nightingale Point is fantastic. What, how do you feel about the teaching thing? Are you going to keep doing it? Teaching, it's hard, but yeah. I love it. I am a teacher. Um, I don't know. Okay, I'll hold you to it when you come back here for your second book and you're <laughs> yeah. teaching one day I a love, week. I love being with the children. Um, I think with most teachers that complain about teaching, they're never really complaining about the children or the young people. That's the best part of the job. It's yeah. all the other stuff that, yeah. you know, yeah. gets yeah, you yeah. down. And before you were a primary school teacher, you were a, a business journalist. Yes. How, did you, how have you done these leaps? How has this happened? Well, I studied journalism. Right. And then... Um, left university like most people you leave university with your media degree and you're like what now <laughs> and i ended up working on a magazine called the polish express oh it's one of my favorite yeah, polish classic. magazines yeah yeah, <laughs> so yeah this was when all the polish people started moving to london so it was kind of um meant to be a version of time out for them okay and they wanted a londoner on the magazine who could do all the recommendations and things oh, like that that's great so that was my first journalism job and then i got into trade media and my specialism was 
social networks. So oh, wow. I'm writing stuff about MySpace has just opened a new <laughs> office, all that kind of stuff. And it was great. That's, ama- that's amazing that you were in print media writing about social media. Yes, that's like the turkeys yeah. writing about Christmas, isn't it? It is weird. It is weird. Yeah, and then it all went pear-shaped. So. But did the journalism... Yeah, pear-shaped. I'm sorry, this novel is not pear-shaped. Um, but then when the, the um, journalism and all that sort of writing for your trade, mm. did that help you when you sat down to start writing a book? The ability, that discipline, I guess. Mm, I'm not sure if it did. I don't know if maybe I picked up a lot of bad habits... Um, in journalism, because it's such a different kind of writing. But I always wanted to write. I was always doing sort of short stories on the side, and I knew I wanted to do it, but it was only when I started teaching that I started taking the creative writing more seriously. I did a really good course, and, yeah, just started taking it a bit more seriously as something I'd want to do. And then in 2017, this would have made you take it more seriously. You won the uh, £3,500 Costa Short Story Award for two steak bakes and two Chelsea buns. Yes. Lush. Tell us about that, please. That's actually genuinely made me hungry. (laughs) Hungry. Yeah, Yeah, that was wonderful. So I entered the competition. I had a short story. I'd been polishing it up for months and months. Finally sent it off to this competition. There are lots of really good writing competitions around there, but this one is free to enter. Okay. Yeah, because they you pay to enter them. You pay so much money to get into them. This it's is almost like some of them are a business making opportunity. Yeah, mm. they definitely are. Yes. And then I found out it was long listed, then it's short listed, and it's all anonymous. So you can't tell anybody. Even when you get down to the final three, you can't tell anyone. They put it up online, they have an actor read your story, and people are downloading it and then they vote. And yeah, so I went to the the ceremony. And the third prize is £500. Fine, so that'll do nicely. That'll be great. Actual cash, Luanne, from your writing. Surely yeah, that's... Yeah, I was so excited about getting £500. Because the other two stories, they're, they're so, so good. They're such talented writers. Mm. And then, yeah, when I won it, I just could not believe it. Did I you was... have to make a speech? No, I just had to go up and get an envelope. I was really <laughs> awkward. And... But the people in charge, obviously, they knew I was going to win. And it was... Penny Smith? Yes, Penny Smith. She was a presenter. Yeah. And she was watching me in the audience. This is before they announced it. And she kept saying, do you want to take off your tights? Do you want to go and take off your tights? And I was like, why? She's stressing me out about the tights. Because my dress kept getting stuck to my tights and I was fussing with it. But she knew I was going to win and I was going to have my picture taken. So was that that was the clue? That was the clue. But I was just getting really stressed. Like, I don't want to have to worry about taking off my tights now. So I didn't. But yeah, then after, she was like, I knew you were going to win. Oh, it's so amazing. It must have been incredible. So, So when you won that award, what did that mean for your writing career? then did people start to take you seriously did you get an agent yes well I already had an agent and the novel was already finished and it was sort of it was floating around the publishing houses and I made a few changes to it so Nightingale Point already existed in what was it 2017 yeah right yeah for for quite a long time before they come out yeah for quite a while and it's quite slow publishing it's really really slow so I'd kind of put it aside and I was working on something new yeah so that it wasn't really on my mind. I was working on this new novel and the short stories. But when I won that award, it was just absolutely amazing. It's such a great night. And I got to meet lots of um, writers who I really love and admire. And because I'd won the prize, they were speaking to me like I was also a writer, which I hadn't had until that point. Even though mm. I had an agent, you know, everyone at school and even in my family, they're like, yeah, you write. It's a little thing on the side. Mm. But I think that was the first time I felt I could actually do this. I could take it quite seriously. That's a really interesting thing to talk about because we get that a lot on this podcast. People who, the, the tipping point, the moment where it has credence and value and people start to go, mm. oh yeah, this is what I do. And they the imposter syndrome drops and they become that thing. Yes. It's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I still feel a bit, oh, it still doesn't feel quite real. 
of course. Yeah. Well, it should do. Is This book is in the bookshops right now. Yes. It's happening. You can walk <laughs> to a bookshop near here. Um, so tell us a bit about uh, when you're doing your, your writing, Luanne. You, this book is finished. This book was finished in 2017. It's only just come out now. Uh, what is next? What have you got next? Do you have another novel? Yes. So I've just sent um, a sort of, not a first draft, maybe like a fifth draft <laughs> of yeah. my second novel to my editor. Okay. So she's going to have a read of it. And then I can go back to that with her help. And, and is it set in the same sort of world or is it completely no, different? No, it's completely different. But a few of my friends who've read it, who write as well, they've said the themes are really similar to Nightingale Point, which mm. I hadn't picked up on before. But maybe that's just the way I write about people overcoming something. And yeah. But it's a lot smaller. Nightingale Point has this huge cast of characters. This book is almost claustrophobic. You know? oh, it's about a road trip with oh, these, okay. these two people... But I'm, I'm still working on it. It's not quite there yet. But I'm really excited to have new characters. Yeah, you must be. You yeah. must be. These guys must have lived with you in Nightingale Point. They must have lived with you for such a long time. For so long. And yeah, I really have a soft spot for so many of the characters. And when we were recording the audiobook, I actually went in and heard the actor reading the Tristan character out. Right. It was just surreal because... it was Tristan. It's Tristan, yeah. So did different actors... Because this is one of those books where each chapter is the voice of a different... Yes. Character. So there were a bunch of different voice actors. Oh, that's so good. And it was really, really difficult to cast, especially Mary, who's the Filipino who's lived in London for a long time. It's really hard to cast. So does she still have an accent? Or yeah, is she... right. yeah. In my head, she's got a slight accent. Mm. Um, and even Tristan, because he's this 16-year-old boy from East London, we wanted authentic accents, so we yeah. actually worked with an acting school in East London to get some students, and they came in and they read, they auditioned oh. for the parts. Did you help cast it? Yeah, I just sort of sat there giggling, because it was so <laughs> weird to hear them. Yeah. But the, um, the young actor who plays Tristan, his name's Bernard Mensah, he's been in um, Lion King, so he's done stage work, and he was in Nativity, the Nativity films. Okay. So it was brilliant. He really nailed it. The audiobooks, it's really interesting. I mean, and the same way that podcasts are becoming huge at the moment. Obviously, this podcast is enormous. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, audiobooks, they're becoming vast at the moment. There's so yes. many of them, and they're becoming as important almost as the written word on paper. Um, do you, does that influence you now when you're writing the second book? Do you think, how is this going to sound? No, okay. no. And I'd never, because I don't listen to audiobooks myself. I didn't really think about it at all when I was writing. It's only when we went in and we we're doing the auditions and then watching how they actually record it, I was quite surprised about how much goes into it mm. and mm. how those actors really have to bring it to life and they, they change it. They do change it. Do they? Do yeah. they ask to change bits or do they have to stay strictly to No, your... I mean, just the way they're reading it out. It's very strict. They really have to read it exactly yeah, as it's yeah, written. Yeah. But um, when Bernard was reading out some of the Tristan stuff, because Tristan raps a lot, so he had to do the raps as well. Oh, and wow. he did it completely differently to how I'd heard it in my head. Yeah, yeah. And he made things a lot funnier than what I thought they were. Yeah. He it is funny. So Tristan's funny. I mean, Tristan for me is kind of the star of the show. Okay. Who would you revisit if there was going to be a sequel? Where, God help us, I hope there isn't another incident like the one no. in Nightingale Point. But would you go back to any of these guys? I don't think so. Uh, what? I don't think so. Really? It would be too difficult. Elvis and Tristan on a road trip. Come yeah. on, man. Come on. Yeah, maybe. No. <laughs> it's, I mean, you should absolutely, you know, always leave them wanting more. Leave us yeah. wanting more. I want more of these characters, yeah. but what I've got is is wonderful. It's a magical book, Night to Come Point. I've really enjoyed it. Um, have you been influenced yourself by writers? Who do you go to? Who is your sort of writing comfort blanket Ooh, that gives you fuel? I love so many. I'm a big David Nichols fan, and I love Zadie Smith. Yes. Um, I love lots of writers. Who am I reading at the moment? Some new writers. Mm -hmm. 
So there are quite a few debuts, quite a few of us at HarperCollins who are coming out around the same time. So we're sort of supporting each other, reading each other's books. I've heard great things about HarperCollins books. There's some great people coming out with HarperCollins. Uh, um, All right, listen, Luan Goldie, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, Nightingale Point, it's your debut novel and it is an astonishingly accomplished bit of work. Congratulations on it. And uh, all the best for the future. Do you think, actually, final question, which Mm -hmm. I always like to ask, especially with this, because this is so visual. What's the, is there like TV chat or is there, it's a movie, right? You started this interview by saying, you compared it to 90s yes. disaster movies. Yeah, well, I always thought movie, but yeah. then there was talk about a TV series, but mainly around the younger people in the books, Tristan, Malachi, Pamela. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was quite interesting and the idea of making Elvis a teenager. So there's there's, there's talk. Yeah. Um, uh, Lauren Goldie, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on the Magic Book Club podcast. Nightingale Points, a fabulous book. It is out in the bookshops. Believe it or not, Luana, it is out. It's happened. It's there. Right, good. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for coming in. 